here on the path of this new day, you may have the grace to look up and out and into your sister's eyes and into your brother's face, your country, and say simply, very simply, with hope, good morning. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was Maya Angelou reading her poem On the Pulse of Morning at the 1993 inauguration of President Bill Clinton. Angelou became the second poet in history to read a poem at a presidential inauguration that day. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy. I was away last week, but it's good to be back with you today, Tuesday, August 24th. Moving from 1993 to today, with Congress and many state legislatures out on summer recess and our collective attention focused on natural disasters, including Hurricane Henry and the earthquake in Haiti and developments in Afghanistan, this is a lighter week in terms of developments for American democracy. That being said, I'm keeping my eye on four issues that continue to evolve and will impact our democracy long term. First, at the state level, the biggest news is also bad news. The Texas special session continues with the House finally reaching quorum after several Democrats returned to the state. The first House hearing on the Republican-led voter suppression bill happened yesterday, and the bill is expected to be jammed through the session very quickly. The legislation includes clear attacks at efforts that made voting possible during COVID, including limiting outdoor voting locations only to natural disasters, prohibiting drive-through voting locations, and reducing mail drop boxes. It also further undermines the fair administration of elections as it limits the ability to remove disruptive or intimidating partisan poll watchers and allows those partisan watchers to sue any election official for any perceived obstruction, potentially creating thousands of fraudulent lawsuits as a harassment and election disruption tactic. And it threatens election officials with criminal prosecution for enacting procedures to meet local community needs and anybody who might provide assistance to voters with disabilities outside of very limited instances, among many other subversive measures included in this omnibus bill. Over in Arizona, the good news is that the Pasquayuki tribe reached a settlement in Pima County to place an early voting site on the tribe's reservation for every statewide primary and general election from now until the end of 2024. But in the bad news column, last week, Arizona Republicans filed a ballot initiative petition to make the state's voter ID law much more restrictive, including requiring every voter with no exceptions to present a photo ID to vote in person and to mail in a copy of their driver's license, state ID, or social security number with their ballot if they're returning it by mail. On the national front, after a long wait, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act was formally introduced as H.R. 4 in the U.S. House last week. This bill would effectively restore the pre-clearance requirements in the Voting Rights Act that was gutted in Shelby County versus Holder, requiring states and jurisdictions with a proven history of discriminatory voting practice to obtain certification before making changes to election procedures. While this is critically important, it's important to note that this bill doesn't replace the need for the For the People Act, both because H.R. 4 is not retroactive to prohibit the many voter suppression efforts that have been shoved through state legislatures this year already, nor does it address partisan gerrymandering, campaign finance, or other major elements of the For the People Act. 
lobbying and behind the scenes negotiation for on the For the People Act is continuing. Many people are expecting to see a new version slightly reduced and modified based on the negotiations with Manchin. But the big question remains if they'll be able to negotiate a way to adjust the filibuster to pass it because Republicans so far have been dead set against any national voter protection laws being passed. Third thing I'm watching are some moves on the big blue gubernatorial uh, states. Shifting attention back, really looking at California and New York in particular. In New York, former Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul became the first female governor in New York history early this morning, taking over from embattled former Governor Andrew Cuomo, who resigned in the face of potential impeachment proceedings around sexual misconduct and cover-ups of COVID deaths in New York nursing homes. The former congresswoman pledged to overhaul the culture in Albany, saying she would not keep any of the staff mentioned in the scathing probe of Cuomo's alleged harassment. She also announced the appointment of two other women as her top aides, placing an all-female team at the head of New York's executive branch. She's mentioned that she will be running for a full term as governor in 2022, and that she'll be taking up to 45 days to figure out which of Cuomo's cabinet members will continue or not. So the dynamics of running one of the largest democratically controlled states will continue to play out in these coming weeks. In California, all eyes are remaining on the recall fight facing Governor Gavin Newsom. As I've said before, this recall effort was largely ignored, but now with conservatives fired up, Newsom and California Democrats are pulling out all the stops to ensure that enough Democrats vote no on the recall to prevent a far-right Republican from replacing him. Criticism is mounting that the Newsom campaign is not prioritizing highly enough outreach to communities of color, and there's a rapid scale-up of independent outreach efforts underway right now. Mailed ballots have now reached all voters, and voting will continue until the final in-person vote on September 14th. Polls are coming out showing conflicting messages around whether Newsom is leading or trailing in the recall effort, and this is going to be a real nail-biter. And this has huge implications, both for California and the entire country, because if Newsom loses, most likely we would see a conservative Republican take over as governor of the biggest state, with huge implications for that fight between Republicans and Democrats in the next year. Finally, moving back to the national level, after negotiations in the Senate successfully led to the passage of the 1.2 infrastructure bill with bipartisan support, and then a Democrat-only vote on the budget framing for a $3.5 trillion budget package, including most of the elements that Republicans wouldn't support, eyes are now focused on the U.S. House. Speaker Pelosi and other Democratic leaders negotiated overnight with a group of 10 moderates who are withholding votes on that $3.5 trillion budget package. They want to see the infrastructure bill voted on first and passed before they consider voting on the budget package, while progressives are demanding a vote on the budget package first. Fundamentally, this is a test of the centrist and progressive wings of the Democratic Party. If the infrastructure bill is passed first, as centrists want, progressives lose a major leverage point to keep everything they want in the budget package. Conversely, if the budget package is passed first, then centrists are limited in how much they can shrink the budget package. It's a back and forth, and as House Budget Chair John Yarmuth said, it's a game of chicken. Negotiations on the timing and the process were not finalized as of this morning as hoped, although these are active negotiations, so by the time you listen to this podcast, it may already be moving forward. But we'll revisit this next week and see where things stand on these two 
massive spending bills. Until then, thanks for joining to hear a quick recap of the key issues this week. I'm Jason Franklin. It's Tuesday, August 24th, and thanks for listening to 10 Minutes on Democracy.